and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about The Boy and the Heron. Joining me today, just fresh back from another portal from another fantasy world, it's Ben Lubin. Ben, how are you? You would not believe the souvenirs I brought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we warned you against doing that, but you just couldn't help yourself. And also joining us, it's our animation correspondent, Joe Morgan. Joe, how are you? Good, good. You know, uh, looking out for pelicans. Should have said, Joe, how do you live? But, you know, we'll get we'll get to that, too. I uh, So The Boy and the Heron is uh, the newest and uh, possibly last, but I guess you never say never, uh, film from Hayao Miyazaki, legendary acclaimed filmmaker from uh, and who is a, one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli. And this is just a big deal because a lot of people thought that his last movie was going to be 10 years ago when the, the with the film called The Wind Rises. And he decided, uh, you know what, I got another idea in me. And uh, that's obviously a big deal when a filmmaker of that stature decides decides to do so and so much so that i'm pretty sure it was like mid 2022 and ben said he wanted to do the podcast on it so i know some of his biggest devotees have had their eyes on it for a while uh i'm i was a novice of uh all studio ghibli movies until about six weeks ago so i'm in but whereas i know ben uh has a a very long relationship with these films and as do a lot of different people and uh joe uh, maybe not as much as ben but like you know joe is well versed in animation and i think probably just had more of a working knowledge of what went into this entire company and uh in this in all of his filmography than i did before so i'm really curious to kind of talk about that from a bigger picture perspective as well as uh get into this movie which is which is uh you know about a uh, a 12 year old boy named mojito in uh who during world war ii in uh tokyo uh loses his mom in a fire that's going that that's going on as a result of the war not long after that his father remarries his uh his late wife's sister and they move to her home in the countryside to be in a safer place uh, Mahito has trouble, you know, adjusting to this new estate and this new school and this new lifestyle. And, uh, but also at the same time is getting harassed by a, a gray heron who eventually like leads him to a tower on the other side of their property that had been constructed by the, his, his, his stepmom's, uh, great, great uncle who eventually just disappeared. And at a, at a certain point, the heron leads him there saying he's going to lead him to his dead mother and, or lead him to his mother who is still alive. And this just takes him on a whole other, uh, you know, journey through a portal to another world and we'll talk about all that entails but i mean that is pretty much it and you know i guess portal worlds are not exactly a uh they're they're not exactly you know foreign to uh mizaki movies so i'm uh curious to talk about that in relation to others ben i i do want to start with you though as i said before uh just I know these films mean a lot to you. You had uh, talked about doing this podcast for quite some time. And because I know it meant so much to you, like I went on my own little journey over the last few weeks and tried to at least like become a more than just a novice in these films. And as I told you, I watched Spirited Away. I watched Princess Mononoke. I watched uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. And I squeezed in uh, My Neighbor Totoro, too. So I, 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 I have a little bit of a concept for uh, these movies, but I know you're uh, at least close to a completist. And I'm curious... Uh, I, and I don't, I don't think I've ever talked about an animated movie with you before, maybe in the context of like one of our year end podcasts or something. I think maybe one or two might've made one of your lists at some point or something like that, but I don't really have a sense for just how you feel about animation in general. Whereas I've been talking about animated movies with Joe for damn near a decade now po- while podcasting. So I, I, I am curious, like, uh, I guess, like, when did you come to Miyazaki movies and like, why do they mean so much to you? So the when I think is also part of the why, mm-hmm. uh, I watched my first Miyazaki movie when I was eight years old. It was Spirited Away. My Oma uh, read a little capsule review for it in like the LA Times and thought it seemed interesting. And, you know, just because it's like one of the things, you know, what 
what, what's a grandma going to do with her grandson? I'm going to take you to the movies. She took me to see this kind of random movie that we kind of had no expectations for. And it ended up just kind of blowing both of us away. And it ended up, like, I, I, I had kind of never seen anything like that at that time. Um, like, I've talked about it a bunch in the pod before, but I'm a pretty big mythology guy. And, and I think there's something significant about mythology, fairy tales, and folklore and kind of what they mean to us and sort of how they touch this, like, almost kind of a dark and magical part of our child brain that never fully goes away. Um, and I think Miyazaki's films, uh, they, they are, for me, kind of the purest form of what a dark fairy tale is supposed to be, especially for, like, kids' media. They are magical and strange and beautiful and joyful and cute and blah 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 but they're also dark and scary and uncomfortable and you're never like and, and i think for me that's what i want th that like that that's the type of stuff that meant something to me when i was a kid um and i generally say i would not be who i am without miyazaki and his films wow um they are movies made for kids who wander off looking Look, looking for magic in the woods and for the adults those kids grow into. And I think they do more than just appeal to that type of kid. They help instill that sense of wonder and that sense of curiosity. Uh, Spirited Away was the first one I saw. It's the one that ended up meaning the most to me at that time. And again, it's probably one of the most important movies I ever saw in terms of like my own personal development. Princess Mononoke is probably my favorite and his films have just meant a lot to me ever since but when i think of miyazaki and when i think of what miyazaki means to me i still think about rainy afternoon going to the movies with my own and kind of how strange and wonderful the world felt when we left the theater that's awesome mike i mean i i have like a lot of different memories about going to different movies with various grandparents uh like all four of my grandparents at different points and but like uh more just because like i saw something that was you know not the kind of thing you do, would think you would see with the grandparent for most of them and not uh but like you know you I mean an eight-year-old going to an animated film with their grandma that like that that makes a little more sense than some of the ones that jump out to mind with things i went to my grandma where it's like oh they're just like a lot of crude jokes in this and it's kind of funny my grandma could laugh at this so it's it's funny that you had like a more a longer last experience even if you know they're all the memories are worth something uh joe i think one thing that was interesting is i was like going back and preparing for this and reading different uh reviews or hearing people talk about it on podcasts and i think in the context of specifically all the animated movies i've talked about with you is interesting is that like i i understood when uh i was going when, when i was going back and like listen watching these movies on max and how they all had the english dub and i understood that like disney handled a lot of those in some in some capacity and whatnot but i also like heard that like uh how heavily some of the pixar people were influenced by uh ghibli and how like john lasseter was like an early champion of like bringing the, like bringing these movies over which i didn't fully understand because i thought some of that might have happened before disney bought pixar uh so i i didn't quite know that there were that many ties to it and i know you're not necessarily like a all-out like completist of ghibli but i'm wondering similarly to you like you know as someone that like you know grew up just like you know being very very into pixar what your first first exposure was to any kind of studio ghibli stuff and what 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 your kind of impressions were of this different style of animation and how it kind of struck you as someone that like animation such a big part of your life that you're now working in it yeah so i didn't really find studio ghibli until i was in high school um because hmm. i kind of grew up on you know your basic american studio animation sort of deal and um as i was getting into high school and sort of becoming interested in working in animation 
decided to kind of expand my horizons a bit, kind of see what else was out there, right? And um, I I came to Miyazaki and Ghibli first through Spirited Away, right? <laughs> like it's it's just such a fantastic film, and it's it's definitely my favorite of his. But um, speaking to sort of Ben's experience when he was eight years old, um, one thing I feel like I talk about a lot of these episodes whenever we discuss one of these movies is like you know having respect for your audience, especially when your audience is primarily you know children and young people. And one of the things that I just really love about Miyazaki is like, he's not afraid to go to heavy places with, with kids and really introduce them to like, what's painful about life. What's um, what challenges you go through in life. I mean, you just, you look at this film right here, like we open with, you know, I mean, a lot of Disney movies like touch on that death element for sure, but it's still just a very harrowing scene where you see the mom literally like reaching through flames, even though that might be, that's a fantastical POV think for the character rather than something we're seeing but you know it's just i really just appreciate that miyazaki like realizes that you know kids experience our experience life you know just as fully and just as you know you know just as fully and just as you know yeah. uh, nuanced as adults do and um that's one thing i've always really admired about his filmmaking in addition to you know the quality of it and the the world building and the going through portals as you yeah well i'm glad you made that point very specifically because i think the one thing i wanted to say before i kind of got deeper into boy and the heron was uh so I, I rattled off those including this now i've seen five of the movies and like the one moment that like stuck with me after like watching all of these movies in close succession you know different parts of them can kind of blend together because some of them are similar thematically but like the one thing that stuck with me more than any of them and i don't even know if it was my favorite of the movies but in totoro when i was watching it and the, the younger daughter like sees Totoro for the first time and no, no one else sees him at first. And she like goes back to her dad to excitedly tell him about it. And like a lot of times, like I think you're conditioned when like kids like, you know, say something outlandish to an adult in the movie, like they just laugh him off or say like, oh, that's silly. Don't you're being ridiculous or whatever like that. Like he like I, I feel like he goes beyond even humoring her. And like, in in a way, like almost makes it seem like he believes her. It's just like, yeah, I, I missed it. But like, I, I, that's, that's awesome. That's great. Like he, he just, he, he's not dismissive at all. And that just like really stuck with me. It's like, he's like, like Joe said, like, he's like really like taking kids seriously and like meeting them on their level and has a lot of respect for that kid audience. And I, that moment in that movie struck me as him, like just like having a lot of respect for kids and their imagination. And like, it was a great way of showing it where you just saw that, saw that young girl, like, you know, actually responded to well by an adult, as opposed to just being kind of shoved off by an adult. Like a lot of times in animated movies, it feels like the parent, the parents are like on the periphery a lot. You know, even in a lot of Pixar movies that we love, like the parents are like, you know, they're just they're there for like a second and that's it. And he always seems to take the time to like make the parents like or whatever. A lot of times it's just one parent in the picture, but takes takes the time to make them a character. And uh, and here and, and not only that, not only do that, but like show them like actually like really treating the kids as like with a great deal of respect. And I and I, and I think he, he he does that too. And boy, in the heron, and uh, just because we get to like and how he treats Mojito and the perspective he has on everything that Mojito is going through. And Ben, uh, we just heard you talk about you know how much all this means to you and it, these movies like are seems like you you've I, I I assume you've seen the the most of if not all of them. And I'm curious because having seen all of them and obviously having such a you know, a great deal of respect and a long relationship with most of those. It, 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 it was surprising. And it seems like it even surprised you that you said the boy in the hair and maybe, and I, you're, I'm sure you're, this could change upon further reflection, but you said it might be in your top three of all of his movies. And the, you see, so the thing that might change upon reflection is it might rise even higher. 
Okay. So, um, so, so it seemed like you were even surprised by that. Not that you did not that you were surprised you liked it, but you were surprised yeah. it resonated that much with you. And oftentimes whenever I do an episode of any podcast with anyone, even with, and with you, like I try and like, you know, dive into it by like asking a very specific question and you often just like shrug that question off and just like go off on your own tangent, which I love. So I'm not even going to try and do that here. I just want to ask you in light of that, was there one thing that like, you know, was there one like prevailing thought you had when you left it that about why it struck such a deep chord with you or something that you were surprised that it did so well, or like what, what struck you about it? So that you were most specifically thinking about when you left the theater, I guess. So there were a couple things. Yeah. Um, one, and this sort of, it, this kind of connects to something you asked earlier, because mm-hmm. you brought up, we've never really talked about animation. Mm-hmm. I actually have a ton of love and respect for animation and I think one thing that I have a, tend to have a problem with with a lot of American animation, and I think this is changing, is the idea that animation should not be viewed as a genre. Animation is a medium. Animation is a medium that is ultimately one of the most free visual like types, like cinematic forms. You can do anything with every element of the frame. Everything can be a choice. And... Miyazaki's style is is very interesting because I think there is very often a clarity of the way he presents worlds. The the images we're watching are detailed and there is a very clear perspective, but I think there is almost kind of a simplicity in his forms, even if the actual forms themselves are very bizarre and imaginative. And I think something that was interesting about this movie is it feels in some ways atypical for a Miyazaki movie in a lot of ways. You see him kind of abstracting the way he presents images in a way that actually feels kind of like an evolution from some of his earlier stuff. Like I was talking to another friend about it and it kind of reminded me a lot of Satoshi Kon, who was Miyazaki's kind of contemporary for, I would say like the nineties and two thousands before he kind of sadly passed away. But I would say in terms of visual form, in terms of narrative form, in terms of, subject matter this is very atypical for a Miyazaki movie and it was refreshing that even at this phase of his career uh in what people thought was going to be his last movie and he's now officially unretired again this is a creator who is still evolving and is still making films that are so sincerely personal and sincerely idiosyncratic every single time as much as this is very clearly a Miyazaki film, this is this is an old master reflecting. And there is something in that wisdom and there is something in that, again, idiosyncratic approach to this film that I really responded to a lot. In terms of subject matter, look, we've talked about it before, but uh, movies about people dealing with grief over dead parents are probably going to hit me in a very specific way. I was going to ask you about that. It's like yeah. you felt comfortable um, talking about it, but yeah, I could see that. There is a spec, and and I think you something you and Joe talked about is um, again the way this does not talk down to children, the way this presents very difficult subject matter. I think it's more than just presenting the subject matter. I think it is the specificity and sincerity in how it conveys that subject matter. Like this is not a movie that happens to be about grief. This is a movie that presents a portrait of grief in an incredibly specific, accurate, and meaningful way. Like when, when my dad was sick, um, there was a dream that I had that sort of connected this wish. And it's something that I think a lot of people who have 
very sick loved ones experience that you wish there was like something you could do. You wish there was like a quest you could go on. You wish there was some magical thing you could do, some like way you could stop the impossible from happening. Because we don't live in the world of fairy tale. You can't go climb a mountain and bring back the secret lost herb of like the dragon king and <laughs> suddenly cancer goes away. It doesn't work like that. But there is still that wish. And it's a childlike wish, but it's a wish that stays with you, I think, no matter what age you are. And I think this movie explored that wish in a very specific way, in a way that I don't think I've really, I, I don't think I've seen that captured so powerfully before. So you can kind of understand Mojito, like, saying multiple times throughout the movie, yeah, I know she's probably not alive, but I got to do this. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's the the knowledge of this is the real world. This is how things are. But that wish for the impossible to be true despite that. And the, 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 those two ideas existing simultaneously. Like I thought that was incredibly well done. And I, another piece of it is I think, and this sort of connects to Miyazaki being, again, an, an incredibly advanced, reflective and refined creator at this point in his career. The balancing of darkness and wonder and goofiness is, is something that's been present in a lot of his films but I think the balance here is as good if not better than it's ever been like I I, I keep going back to the fucking parakeets <laughs> uh, which they are the stupidest thing you will ever see they are goofy they're silly like they're they're, they're not knife, they're knife wielding but they're terrifying <laughs> And, and again, there is something about, like, you don't have to choose between those two modes. It can be all of that coexisting in the same image. So yeah, I mean, look, there's a whole lot I loved about the film. I mean, an another thing that I, I really do ha have to bring up with it, this is in many ways his most abstract film narratively. I was going to ask you about that because it felt incredibly dense, but I didn't know if I just happened to pick the, the others I watched just happened to pick five of the more, you know, not as dense ones, but it, it seemed like this was like a little different in, 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 with respect to that for him. So, no, he, he's fully embracing dream logic in a way that I don't think he has really done, but in a way that for me felt entirely appropriate. Hmm. And again, there's a difference between dream logic and kind of, hey, let's just have a bunch of random shit happen. There is an emotional flow to the way things progress, even if there isn't necessarily an internal logical consistency. Um, and for me, it felt appropriate and it felt like it flowed in the way that worked. But I think part of the reason why some people have had, as I've noticed, a little more mixed reaction to this one, it doesn't feel like a conventional Miyazaki movie in the way some people were expecting. I loved that, but... So, yeah, and you threw a lot at, at us there, but I think it's interesting what you mentioned about just like, you know, how it does contain multitudes, like when you were talking about the parakeets and how it just does a lot of different stuff. And I think that gives makes it kind of something for everyone, even if like a lot of this stuff would be challenging for, you know, an eight-year-old to take in. An eight-year-old can probably still enjoy it too or something like that. Well, and, the point is, even as an eight-year-old, even if there are things you don't fully understand. I think there's a lot of stuff that people our age don't even understand that, that he's never going to yeah. explain. And I think a lot of critics have done a good job of just like accepting that, you know? Yeah. This is my movie of the year by far. And I would be very, very shocked if anything comes close. Interesting. Well, I guess what I was saying all that to say, Joe, I, and for your reference, Ben, like, again, 
talked about at this point on the podcast with about, with Joe about more animated movies than I can count. And like, I always make Joe go on a separate digression with me in all those podcasts to, to talk specifically about, would this work? We're, we're two adults talking about this. Do you think like this movie would work for adults and kids? Cause I mean, every now and then there's like a Pixar movie that like, we're, we're just like, I, or at least I am like, I don't know if this is, would work for a kid at all. And it seems like it failed if it didn't do both. You know, and I'm wondering as you're watching this, Joe, and you're hearing Ben talk about all these things that it did. One, I mean, like if you have anything you want to add to what Ben just said, please go ahead. But I'm wondering as you were watching this, did was there did you find yourself kind of impressed with like the scope of what he was able to accomplish? And were you thinking like, well, yeah, like I mean, I appreciate him going after all these things, but at the same time, I think he did a good job of making a uh, a movie that could appeal to a wide audience, even if like he is, you know, reaching for some pretty abstract themes here. Yeah, you know, with this one specifically, um, coming away from it, you know, Ben was talking about like the dreamlike nature of the movie. Um, I yeah, really you told me you told me you went on your own little journey because you went to a late night show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I went to like a ten thirty screening, and um, <laughs> and the the film is so surrealist too that like the the whole journey of it kind of did feel like sort of like a dream state for me for a lot of it, and and uh, but just to speak to my experience watching it, like I definitely came away, I, I like you know, this might be a little overly simplistic, but like this one more than any other Miyazaki film I've watched and a lot of the films I watched this year, I came away from it, which is like really intense feeling throughout, you know, there was times where, you know, I kind of got left behind by the narrative a little bit, had to catch up. There were times where I was like, who's that person again? And um, I'm not necessarily saying that's a problem with the film so much as the time that I was watching it, but I feel like emotionally and where I was with, um, what Mahito was going through, what he was experiencing. Like, I felt like I was present for all of that. And there's just like this sort of achingness to the whole thing. Like I'm thinking like, you know, um, I find it very, uh, I'm glad that he's not done making movies, but if this were his last one, I just find it, um, I found it so profound that it's sort of like very much like I, in reading about it afterward, like this, this sort of journey to like accepting accepting the end of things or accepting that like this part of you is done now or this this aspect of your life is finished now and you kind of have to like have that courage to go forward you know like um you know we we experienced like recently you know like my my wife's mother died last year and our life changed in like a bunch of different ways like we lost her like first and foremost but then we left California and came back home and like we were having our first child around the same time. And just, you know, it's, it's very like harrowing to like, you know, lose such an important part of your life and then have to like, just, you got to keep going into like this very vastly different existence, you know? And so like, um, you know, just watching this and kind of, contextualizing it and what we had been through the past couple of years like you know i'm getting i'm getting around to the point i originally made which is oh, just like I, I appreciate this yeah like just emotionally like um there was just that depth of feeling as i was watching it where i you know just felt that very intensely going through it and i think it's one of the great successes of it because whether you're eight or 48 i think we've all experienced loss in some way you know very to varying degrees and i think that if you've experienced what that is, then you're going to get something out of it, whether or not you fully comprehend everything that's uh, 
narratively plot wise. So yeah, no, I, I appreciate you going there. I wasn't going to really ask you about that unless you wanted no. to bring it up. But I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, yeah, and it's like, well, I mean, I say that to say I, I've never lost someone that that close to me in my family, like like you guys have. I mean, nothing like grandparents, but that's two generations apart. So I think it's different. It's obviously different when you lose someone that's like you know closer to you like that than someone that like you know you're more prepared for it when it's someone that's of a grandparent age. And, but like, in spite of, even with that, I saw a 1030 AM showing, not a 1030 PM showing. <laughs> so I, I might not have been quite as a, a woozy for some latter half of the movie stuff as, as you might've been, but I still like, you know, I'd be lying if I told you, if you came out and asked me right after I saw it, can you explain everything that happened in the last hour of that movie? No, but, but I'm someone that like, you know, I probably have a lower tolerance than a lot of people that like I regularly have as guests on the podcast for like stuff that is that dense and abstract. I'm like, I, I like, I, I really like, I just want to know what happened. I don't want to have to question whether or not anything's real. Just that's not necessarily always my kind of thing. And, but I didn't leave it feeling frustrated, you know? And I think sometimes with movies like that, I, I do. And I'm like, I, I, I just, I, I want to know what it means. I don't want to have to think that hard about if this is a, if this is just a dream or if this is actually happening or if this is, something that someone's having as part of a, some psychotic break. Like there is lots of pop culture that revolves around that kind of thing. And it usually annoys me. And, uh, and here it's like, yeah, we, I, I, it didn't bother me at all. I wasn't questioning, like, I, I wasn't like frustrated with the film for like, you know, not, not holding my hand any more than it did. I was just kind of able to let go and just accept it. And I think that's because he was very in tune to the emotions that his protagonist was going through. And so much so that like, I felt fine with, I, I felt fine. I felt like I was in good hands. And I just like, as long as I know how to feel in the moment, I'm not sweating it. And I think a lot of movies don't accomplish that when they want to take you on some weird ride. So I really respected what he was going through. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, if I'm curious if you had thoughts on that, Ben, specifically, like how 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 it kind of like stayed connected with the how it kind of let, let the audience like we, are, we already all already mentioned how like he, he does a good job of, you know, connecting with the audience as a kids. But did you have thoughts on just like how I guess I mean, we can go anywhere in the movie, but I guess I am thinking more about like the second half of the movie and and because we were just discussing how dense it was and just like how like he didn't lose the thread. You know what I'm saying? So a couple things. One, the, Joe brought something up about endings that I do want to come back to, but mm -hmm. it, it would have to be after kind of the spoiler break if we do one for this episode. So I, I'm going to circle back. But sure. I think part of what worked about the movie is... Again, it's it's not just that it follows, again, its own kind of abstract internal logic. It feels very specifically like dream logic. The movie moves and flows in the way a lot of dreams tend to move and flow. And I think narratively, the fact that we are dealing with something that is first and foremost playing with kind of fairy fairy tale iconography and specifically Japanese fairy tale iconography, I think it allows us to be in a place where we're more willing to suspend disbelief. Yeah, I was really long-winded for a second there. I should have just simply said, like, non-linear stuff is just not normally for me, and it just no. didn't bother me here. Yeah, but I mean, again, I think the subject matter is part of why people are more willing to suspend disbelief with something like this, mm -hmm. too. And, and, and I think part of it, there is an overwhelming sense of adventure and reckoning with kind of what an adventure is, what an adventure feels like that I think suffuses a lot of Miyazaki's work. It's why actually kind of one of the movies that I, I mentioned to you, Josh, maybe worth watching that I figured I, I, I get it if you're probably not gonna have time for that one is Castle in the Sky, which I think is kind of Miyazaki's purest adventure film. And I think in terms of the way it, like it kind of portrays that feeling, it has some very interesting parallels with uh, Boy and the Heron. 
But part of it is, again, there's this feeling of adventure and that feeling and kind of our, our familiarity with what an adventure is and what an adventure feels like. It's part of what keeps people patched on, even when this, the, the narrative goes a little all over the place. Another part of it is even when things get a little more abstract, there is still a very clear grounding in character and specificity of feeling. Even if the actual events we're watching are ne not necessarily narratively connected to what's come before, even if things like elements of a story kind of appear out of nowhere and we're almost just kind of forced to accept them for what they are, which I will say again, feels very in line with how dreams work. Even while that is happening, we as an audience are still latched on to specificity of Mihito and his grief and his yearning. Uh, we're latched on to one moment that I really, really loved was when he finds his aunt and as she's giving birth. And there is this howling anger. And again, not sure if that would qualify as spoiler, so I'll try to be a little vague about it, but she says some incredibly hurtful things to Mihito. Um, and there is a crushing pain, even if we haven't, we, we, that character has been gone from the story for a large chunk of the movie at that point. We're not necessarily narratively primed for that particular fallout, but it is so overwhelmingly clear where it is coming from. Mahito's response and her response to kind of how he responds to that moment, they're emotionally, even if the moment sort of comes out of nowhere, like in the narrative, it doesn't matter. And, and I think something that can be said about Miyazaki's films, even when they are more narratively contained, we are willing to accept things as they happen. We're willing to accept the imagery that is surreal and impossible and magical uh, as it appears to us because he puts us in a place where we're willing to accept the strangeness of the world. And that's something that's very hard to pull off. And it's one of the things that makes Miyazaki as special as he is. Uh, it's that he puts you in the place where you don't feel like you have to understand. Like I said, I, I, I got that, that, that definitely sums up how I felt. I just, I, I don't think I, I, I don't necessarily have the same context form that you do. So it's, 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 it's interesting to hear that that's not necessarily a, um, that might be more intentional on his part than I realized, I guess is what, what I would say to that. That's interesting. Um, you guys have both mentioned like trying to possibly talk around spoilers. And I think there is a good way to do that for this one. And it's probably worth it because it seems like it's going to hang around in theaters long enough that I'll get this out before when people, people still have a chance to like make that call if they want to. It's actually done surprisingly well in the box office. Yeah, one thing one thing is really interesting. I guess you probably you guys both probably saw it. I thought it was cool. It's like I didn't and I didn't realize. It. I guess I, I knew he was, Mizaki was a big deal, but like that they don't market his movies in Japan because they just know everyone's gonna go to see them, which I think is really cool. So it's already made like a shit ton of money over there, and I think it won the box office the first weekend in America. So I think it'll it'll definitely stick around through the holidays and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I if I mean to the extent I, I'm even capable of spoiling the second act, I, I'll, I'll hold off on that for a moment. Um, and ask and ask Joe. I mean, unless you have any other thoughts on what Ben was just saying, Joe, I'm curious if you had if you had anything you that really struck you visually about the movie because I think that's one thing we can discuss a little bit without necessarily spoiling anything because you guys both already alluded a little bit to the opening scene which I think was kind of notable even me as someone that has just only watched a handful of his other movies could know like oh it's cool that this guy at this age is doing something you know pushing himself visually too 
because uh, at that that some of that 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 opening scene, it's like very interesting to start the movie off with something that feels visually distinct from at least most of us. To, to my understanding, from hearing people that are more well versed in his films than me talk about this, felt visually distinct from anything they'd ever seen him do. Uh, it, it, it is completely out of place with everything he's done. Mm-hmm. But still, like very beautiful and yes, a, a, not in a bad way. way. But. Yeah, it will. Uh, yeah, something bad is happening on screen, but it's 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 beautifully rendered. Um, and I so I'm wondering, Joe, like, w- were you struck by that, or were you struck by anything else visually in the movie that really stuck with you that uh, that that you just like were really impressed by? Um, yeah, well, yeah, definitely the flames from the hospital uh, and those scenes where he's like recalling that moment. Um, I just thought that was really gorgeously done, and it kind of, um, you know, I mean, to what what good movies are supposed to do it puts you there in a way like it's like you know as he's running you get like that that shaky like sensation where you're with mojito and you're just like you're frantic and you're just trying to get there and, and i just i just thought um that opening sequence and then when he recalls it later in the film it, it, it's just that's really powerful stuff and then um i'm actually gonna go for a small detail to detail here um yeah. i love the i love the animation of the heron specifically as it's like coming in and out of the beak, you know, um, like where you know the, it was like, disturbing I, in a way. Yeah, it, the it, first it time it very... smiles at like my fur. <laughs> <laughs> I I just love the the constant like fidgety fidgeting of it. Like it's never like, especially after that first encounter where he shoots the hole through or he stabs the hole through the beak, and like it's just never like quite right after that point and. I always just found it very visually interesting and you kind of almost like get this sense of like, yeah, I mean, it, it's very just literalized transformation for our heron. Right. But, um, and then specifically the the sequence where he's trying to plug his hole in the beak. Like I just, I love that. I thought it was like fun comedy and stuff and just trying to find a way to, to, I don't know. Like I was, um, I was just particularly, I kind of, I kind of went in like wanting to, like I watched the, I watched the dub because I was very interested to hear Robert Pattinson's performance after reading some stuff about it, and um, I actually came away like Robert was very good. I'm not taking anything away from him, but it was more just I was just really just loved the physical comedy <laughs> as well as how it served uh, the story and everything. Just the way the heron was constantly like just jostling almost you know like skin on skin off all that all that there's, there's kind of this constant shifting between how much of like a heron and how much of like a fat little man it is yeah. and even like just it's almost kind of seamlessly like second by second it, it's changing a lot but in a yeah. way it's like the the moment of transition is never fully marked mm-hmm. and, yeah. and and i think that's kind of part of what creates that really cool effect you're talking about like it is always in flux yeah yeah i kept wondering i kept wondering throughout the movie if i was supposed to be like if, if i was supposed to be reading into wh- wh- when he looked more like one or than the other and but like it was just it was it was very it, 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 like it, you could never pin him down so it was i felt like that was a fool's errand on my part um but but like ben another thing joe and i always talk about when we talk about these with respect from a visual standpoint is i'm always trying to like pick up something in these movies that does feel new um you know like whether like with just disney and pixar stuff over the last several years like ever oftentimes you can point to a couple that the movies that just feel like oh they this one just feel feels visually a lot like that one but hey i did think this one way they rendered that city was cool that, that was different or something and i'm always able to like pick up on something different and it seems like obviously the beginning of this one was like something different and that's cool that like this movie i'm sure this would have still been your favorite movie of the year even if that first scene didn't look exactly like that and feel that distinct but i am i am curious like when when you like go when you think about these movies like how often are you looking for how often are you like 
watching it for the visuals and is it like, and how often does that like, you know, really enhance your overall appreciation of the movie if you do pick up on something like that with respect to the heron or uh, or anything else that's going on in the background? Well, I, I think part of what it is is the visuals are inseparable from like the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like the like Miyazaki is he is a filmmaker and an artist, but he's also a pure animator. And this sort of goes back to what I was saying. Like one of the things that is incredible about incredible about animation at its best, every single element of every single frame is specifically meant to be the way it is. And the more, like when you, when you read more I should about, say the pre, the pre, I, I read a lot about like the pre-production on this stuff. And well, I was going to say, like the like, more you read about Ghibli and their production protocols specifically, they're possibly too exacting with a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, look, as much as I love Miyazaki, as much as I love Ghibli, I can imagine a few fates worse than working at Studio Ghibli. <laughs> <laughs> but every single element is meant to be the way it is. Every single detail is a choice. And I think in a perfect world, that's what film is. It's like everything, everything is a choice. Everything is controlled. There's nothing taken for granted. But with live action, even with the most like exact and masterful filmmaker, there's only so much you can really do. With animation, every single element is, is yours to do what you will with. Um, and again, it's one of the problems with, I think, the way animation tends to be perceived in the U.S., Animate for, I mean, for a long time, animation was cartoons we show kids. And again, that's not to demean cartoons we show kids in any way, but it's just the idea that animation is only that and can only be that mm -hmm. when it can be anything. And I think in a lot of European and a lot of East Asian, I mean, Japan tends to kind of be the easiest touchstone for that. But you could, there's actually been some really cool stuff coming out of Korea and China in recent years too. But there tends to be more of a willingness to let animation be treated as a full medium on its own. And when you have a really masterful filmmaker who also happens to be a really masterful animator with a strong sense of how to get what he needs out of the image, you are looking at films that can be completely free. And so I think when you watch a Miyazaki film, like, you can't separate the visuals from the film itself because every element of the visuals is in relationship with every single other element of it, which is in relationship with every single moment of dialogue, every single moment of sound, every single story choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah as I say, I think that is well said, uh, especially with, it's almost more so with this one than most, at least most of the others I watched, not that those aren't all beautiful in their own way, but like, you, you've obviously talked a lot about just like the dreamlike nature of this and how it feels like it can turn into anything at any time. And, yeah. uh, and, and just like, like one second you're in just like an underground, like, like almost, you know, uh tunnel feeling thing. And the next year out in the, you're out in the field and the next year in like a, what feels like almost like a, a, a mansion, even if it's like um, some kind of Japanese architecture or something like that, or next year in like a cabin and uh, if it, or, or next year in a portal, like if, if it at any moment feels like it can turn into anything without like feeling too jarring. And I think that probably is a credit to this. The design of the islands, I think is some of the most incredible, like incredibly imaginative stuff that Miyazaki has ever produced. Mm -hmm. Uh the Wara Wara, the Pelicans, the... We didn't talk about them, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny, I, I guess, and the one thing I had picked up on, even ha after having only watched five of the six of his movies, was like, there is always something like that Wara Wara, 
And like, you know, it's like, it, it could like, the, the, well, I forgot there's forest things in Princess Mononoke. I can't, I can't, I, I'm drawing a blank on what they were called at this point, but like, he's always able to like, and I, there's a bunch of weird shit and spirited away that like, you know, uh, it feels like it could be something like that. And well, there um, tends to be a grounding of a, of a lot of his stuff in Japanese folklore. Um, and again, old Japanese folklore, there tends to be uh, some sense of animism of, of kind of elements, like elements of the natural world having souls or having kami or having some type of present mystical presence associated with them. Mm. Even the stones have souls. And so having these kind of like almost like these very tiny, almost uh, mindless kind of small spirits, it, it's very in line with uh, a lot of kind of Japanese myth and tradition. To make like you know just some ball of something with a face on it as expressive and uh feel as like meaningful as it as it did and or something like those parakeets as expressive and uh containing the multitudes they do like i mean i think that does really speak to the the competence and the the intention that these animators and miyazaki himself like you know put into all that joe did you, did you have anything to add to everything that ben just said or anything like that or just any other thoughts as you think about like just what, what what goes into like based on what you know about just like how what goes into making like an anim animated product like any other bigger picture thoughts you had on just like what they accomplish here uh no it's just it's a gorgeous film and and you know like like dennis talked about you, you like you really are responsible you're putting everything in the frame intentionally you know and there's like a really great specificity specificities like these things have to be servicing like character or plot or or theme you know it's not just like oh that random bush was there because we chose this location right mm -hmm. so um but uh yeah so like no i thought it was gorgeous and i thought i thought everything that we saw was in service to what to what was what was going on uh speaking to the war war specifically as i was watching that scene with the with the pelicans which i thought was really affecting um i did kind of have a thought where i was just like you know uh, Pixar's soul would have been a lot more interesting if there had been some pelicans flying around <laughs> the big portal going down the planet Earth there. But um, yeah, no, uh, no, it was, um, it was, no, that sequence in particular and the um, entire movie as a whole, like I thought it was just wonderfully, wonderfully done. No, like I said, I, I, I am new to all the, all the I'm new to Studio Ghibli and I'm, I'm, I mean, I should reiterate, I'm ashamed it took me till the last two months of 2023 to watch any of these since they've all been available on HBO since like HBO Max launched in 2020. And I, so like, I, 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 but like having just like come to them now, it's like, I've just been immensely impressed with how all of these look and just, just the just the the attention to detail and the vibrancy and the creativity it, it, it i mean i i've been so busy lately with um with work and life and stuff that like it's been i've watched fewer non-new releases this year than i have like i've put out the podcast about as much as i ever have but like i have not watched a lot of like non-2023 releases this year just because i between work and recording the podcast editing the podcast seeing the new movies for the podcast there's just and watching TV shows too that I that I want to be up on like very little time to watch any non new movies this year and I which sucks but like I hope I hope that changes next year but like 
I I I made this stuff a priority, and I'm not and I'm not upset that I did. And I'll, I probably honestly maybe the visuals are like one one reason for that more so than anything else. Because when you don't mind just like setting your eyes on something like that, when you're reading boring legal documents all day, it's just you know just something that like you know is that aesthetically pleasing just makes it an easier watch when like you are just trying to find like an hour and forty five minutes to just do something other than work. And it's just it's been really a really nice escape, and I'm and I'm glad I put that time in. And I think just I, they give they give away animators and Miyazaki deserve more credit for that than uh just about any anyone else in these operations as great as completed products as you are uh guys like i said i don't know if i could spoil this movie if i tried but like i wanted to give ben a chance to talk more freely about it too because i think he might have better uh more insightful thoughts on you know the ending or any other plot specific things than i did and uh and i, I mean i i'm gonna have other thoughts too maybe that aren't spoilerly but i want to i wanted we've talked enough about this and i think everyone would is clear on the fact that we would recommend this movie and but highly recommend you go see it i mean people might be listening to this you know we're recording this a week before Christmas, but you know, it's going to be out that week. And I think people might, you know, have a, uh, like have plenty of opportunity to go see it with their family while they're still out for the holidays. And I highly recommend it. It's again, as we've said, people from all ages can, you know, hold on to something from here. And I would recommend you do that and then come back and listen to the rest of this or feel free to listen to the rest anyway. Cause again, I think you're not going to lose that much if you hear any spoilers, but I think decent place for us to have a jumping off point for that anyway. Ben, I think we, we already talked about it a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, it, it kind of all go, like, I think, I think Joe did a good job earlier of, you know, talking about like the thesis of the movie, uh, even without kind of spoiling the specific stuff at the end. But I think, you know, I, I, unless there's some other point you want, some other point you were thinking about uh, dwelling on in that last half of the movie, I think a, a lot of it does come down to the last, you know, the last big conversation he has with the great uncle and uh, talking about, you know, just um, uh, being, able to, being, able, being able to let go of certain things. And I don't know if that was a prevailing thought you had as you're watching about this, but as you think about like just a lot of the big developments in that last act as abstract as so much of it is, is there one thing that just kind of stuck with you from that corner of the movie that we hadn't quite touched on yet? So a couple things. Um, yeah. I, first off, like the ending fully broke me. Um, <laughs> th- this was uh, me ugly crying in an AMC. Who, did you see it with anyone or did you see it by yourself? I saw with my mom. Actually. Oh, okay. Um, I I actually she made me give her dibs on this one. I think uh, okay, like okay. as soon as they like announced that it was actually coming out. Hmm. Um. So I I waited like a couple of weeks to see it just because like I I promised my mom. So that's one one thing I'm not <laughs> going to go back on. Um. But yeah, the end. Like I think the ending just like and I, I can't even tell you why i started like what why exactly i started crying when i did but all i know is kind of it, it was around that ending sequence around when the parakeet king cut the blocks hmm. i just started crying and i couldn't stop and i think something again it's it's destruction we're watching all of this potentially this magical world that we've come to love and be so familiar with is scary and wonderful and horrible and magical as it is it's we're watching we're watching kind of the apocalypse of this dream and kind of the way the, the sadness of that coexists with this kind of feeling of acceptance that the moment gives us I, again and i can't tell you exactly why i i cried but there was something about that that just kind of reached me in a way i didn't expect and i also really have to highlight the actual ending of the movie because after the dream ends, after the, he's back in the real world, after things go back to normal, we flash forward a couple of years later, and it just ends on this moment of complete mundanity. Move back to uh, Tokyo. Yeah. 
they're back to, they're going back to Tokyo. And there is also this piece of knowledge that we're given that Mahito will forget everything that we've seen. Okay. So I, I, I've, I've seen a couple of readings of that. I thought it was like, he's supposed to, but that's only if you like, I, I, I thought some people said maybe he won't because he took that block with him. So you think he's going to supposed to forget all of it? We don't. So I think we don't know. Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's possible. But I think more than part of how I read that is sometimes as we grow up, there are these things that mean so much to, to us when we're kids and we can't understand or relate to them in the exact same way that like they that we relate to them when we were young as as we grow up but there are still things that connect us to that moment and even if we can't remember the actual experience of that even if we can't be fully back in that feeling of being a kid it's there there we still have these reminders of the thing that is missing Um, yeah so so he might he might forget most of the stuff but like even that one keepsake can like remind him of the feeling if nothing else is what you're saying I think even more than a physical keepsake, there is some piece in his mind that brings him back to what, like what this moment was. And I think the significance of that for, for me, there is power in this kind of hazily remembered and magical experience of childhood. And this actually goes back to something Joe brought up kind of at the beginning of the podcast. And I didn't want to kind of respond to that too much (laughs) to the ending, but not only does Miyazaki not talk down to children, not only does he respect them and respect their perspective, but I think that he actually places a ton of value in that magical, that magical purely childlike experience. And even if even if it is something that is meant to be fragmentary, because look, even if we try to hold on to something from when we're kids, we do grow up. There is value in the thing, even if it is a thing that is meant to be temporary. And that type of particularly childlike experience of magic, even if it doesn't fully stay with us, even if it's meant, even if it's there just to be forgotten, it's still important. And it still matters. And it's still beautiful, even as temporary and fragmentary as it is. And again, because I think Miyazaki is not someone who, like, there is supposed to be one interpretation and one meaning of of what we're watching. This is the thing. This is the one meaning. Once you understand that, you got it. I think he is an appropriately bottomless artist. And I think that there are any number of potential readings one can make over the significance of that ending. That's what I took from. The, the other thing I sort of want to touch on, and this is sort of related to kind of the other thing Joe mentioned about this kind of being a capstone film for Miyazaki. Mm. When The Wind Rises came out, um, I called it Miyazaki's The Tempest. And I think a lot of great artists have kind of a final work that is their version of The Tempest, like Shakespeare's final play, which is not only a great final work, in and of itself, but something that kind of attempts to sum up and reckon with and bring to an ending all of the ideas that the film, like the filmmaker or the artist has dealt with over the course of their career. The Tempest, you sort of have kind of the tragic Shakespearean hero as an old man who finally achieves the ending that none of Shakespeare's other tragic heroes were able to. It, it is it is not just, it is an ending for almost Shakespearean, Shakespeare's prototypical hero, but it's also an ending for Shakespeare as an artist who kind of casts himself as the main character of that play and gives himself a rest 
Prospero burns his books and kind of retires, retires from life as a magician. He, uh, he embraces his ending. He embraces this end of this phase of his, of his life and, and work. And in many ways, The Wind Rises felt like Shakespeare, like, felt like uh, Miyazaki's The Tempest. It is, because I, I know you haven't seen that one, Josh, but it is, uh, it deals with a lot of Miyazaki's pet themes. It deals with him kind of rap grappling with his own reputation. It deals with the idea of, of creating great things that you don't fully have control over. And it has him revisiting a lot of iconography from earlier in his career. And so it felt like this was, oh, this was his capstone to his career. This was his Tempest. And nine years after that, he came out with another film that was actually his The Tempest. <laughs> that also probably won't be his final film, but we'll see. I think even more than The Wind Rises, this feels like an appropriate reckoning with Miyazaki's life and work and career and if this is to be his final message not only to his family not only to the people who love him it is an appropriate final message and it also literally involves instead of burning books breaking blocks like it, it the, the the imagery it's too on the nose to not call it his his tempest well so a couple things we didn't talk about yet actually and it's interesting you're talking about him reckoning with certain things like we didn't talk about the fact that this is apparently pretty autobiographical form uh and like you know he he largely came of age in like this post-war japan time and yeah. had a dad that profited a lot from like the airplane industry which is like and on some level in these kids movies is like you know a pretty uh um you know a, a fun thing and and then if you think too hard about it like it's like eh, maybe not so fun for people that like saw the destruction that wrought you know around that time the wind rises reckons with that a lot specifically yeah and we'll hear it's like the dad, who you should say is voiced by Christian Bale, who, you know, has a history of, you know, uh, dubbing some of other Miyazaki stuff. The dad is like just a very happy-go-lucky figure kind of for, you know, some early parts of the movie, just running off to go do his airplane stuff. Uh, I, I think, you know, even if you've only seen as many Miyazaki movies as I did, he probably feels some kind of way about that stuff now looking back on it. So th that's one aspect of it. We didn't delve too much into that yet, but I'm sure his, I'm sure that's part of what Mojito is dealing with, even if, you know, the movie doesn't explicitly, you know, reckon with that he's obviously going through like a lot of stuff or doesn't have him flat out say that i'm sure that's something he's thinking about some uh but also uh um aside from that we didn't talk too much uh, about the I, I referenced it earlier but like the i guess the original title of the movie was how do you live and i think just there's you know i guess there, there's a japanese book by the name that pops up within the course of this that was the title of the japanese version of this movie before uh they, they changed it for the uh you know the stateside release and all that. And I mean, I think just the, the question itself, how do you live? Like, obviously, like a lot of people thought that was very, you know, thematically appropriate for this movie. I, and I, I can't disagree with that. And I, and I, I guess one thing I was thinking is like, you know, as I watched it was, and again, going back to kind of what Joe was saying earlier in relation a little bit to the ending about like, you know, knowing when to let go of certain things. I don't think he's necessarily like, I mean, in some ways, literally before he leaves the portal world, he is letting go of his mom and all that. But I think I think it is a really for me, it was a really effective ending. I'm curious what you think, too, Joe. I, I appreciate how patient you've been because we've been, been and I've been talking for a while. But like it was, you know, interesting that like, yeah, it's not like explicitly asking him at the end to like, you know, forget everything about his mom or anything like that. Like, again, in some respect, he is. But at the same time, I like the mundane, like, you know, 
moment that it ends on that Ben highlighted because it's a certain point. It's like, yeah, you need to kind of like, you know, go and live life. And you're in some probably, he's probably spinning his wheels in that first act to a certain extent and just kind of trying to retreat a little bit. And it's like, no, like, you know, at some point, you know, you need to like, I, I, and it, go, it goes too to the, I guess the dad, there's something conversation with the dad. Now, now, shoot, now I'm forgetting. Who is it that's, he, he comes to the conclusion that he's got to like, grapple with some of the darkness inside of him. Is that, is that conversation with the heron or is that with, um, uh, something about letting go. There's something. There's an exchange at some point about letting go of like the the anger inside of him or something like that. Um, or maybe it wasn't anger. It was, shoot. Now I'm now I'm for, I'm forget. That's I'm yeah. I'm not sure which moment specifically you're talking. About. Yeah. No. I think there's something about like they're, they're telling him he needs to like reckon with like some kind of anger inside of him or some kind of um uh ugliness. I can't I can't remember what the term is, but it's definitely like I I do think if nothing else, Mahito is like having to reckon with like, you know, just going on and living life, if nothing else. And I think um and, and I just think it's it's a really good way that the movie ends. It's like, yeah, you know, he, he has a lot of stuff that he's gone through in his past, but like at, at, at the end of the day, like I think it, the I think that last act does a pretty good job of just like showing like look, yeah, I mean there, there's a there's a lot there's a lot that you're dealing with in life and this this particular kid has gone through a ton. But yes, at a certain point, you have to like, you know, you do have to move on and just kind of accept that. But I don't, I, I think it's an interesting and appropriate choice to be like, yeah, like that might just be like going back and living life, even if that means just going with this makeshift family that you didn't necessarily ask for and just like, you know, move, moving back to a different place. Like it's, 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 it's a, it's a different kind of ending where you often expect movies to maybe end on a bigger note. Um, Joe, what what especially kind of like stuck with you with respect to the to, to the to the, the way that he decides to wrap this movie up? You know, I think speaking to Mahito and then mm-hmm. kind of getting we when you have like those big transition moments in life where you you go through a big event that fundamentally changes how everything goes. Like I, I'm I'm drawn to the scene where he does have that rough day at school and the kids kind of beat up on him. But then he takes that rock and gashes his own head. And there is that tendency just to retreat and to wallow in it and to stay in it as long as you can, you know? And it's it's one of those things where when you're dealing with something like that and you're going through something like that, there is a level of bravery to just get up and shower and get dressed, going to the grocery store, going to your job, like things like that. Right. And at least how I read it, you know, he, it like he is taking that step forward into it. Like, you know, he is accepting, you know, this thing and that he's got to move forward. And sometimes it, it really is that mundane existence, but then even, even so it's like, he has the new half sibling to look after now. Right. He's got that new responsibility and he has this renewed verb, this renewed, sense of purpose where he's like okay like i've i've lost my mother in in this horrible way but um like ultimately this journey into the tower and to this dream world has transformed me in such a way that um i can i can go on you know and and i and that's the thing like you know it's like when we when we overcome something when we go through those those stages of grief or when we get over something or we get uh to a point of it like there is no like magical reward at the end right it's just it's just living you know <laughs> so that's, that's sort of what i took away by the way while joe was talking ben i, I realized what, what i was failing to articulate actually kind of tied into what he was saying and it, the, the term was how like those blocks ha- were like inflicted with malice 
and how he kind of comes to the realization, like he needs to let go of that. And he, he connects that back to his scar at some other point. And I mean, I'm, I, I, I was reminded by this by like going back to the Wikipedia plot summary, but it's coming back to me now where he's like specifically remembering, I need, he needs to, he's, he's highlighting that, but also recognize like, all right, I need to embrace those who actually do love me in my life, which I did resonate with me in the moment. I was just having trouble articulating it, but like they specifically highlight, like I need to let go of that malice and that, and, and that idea did resonate with me. Well, I think part of what's significant about that moment mm-hmm. is it's not just that it's not just about him letting go. It's also about the relationship between young and old and the expectations the old have for the young. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this idea that like you expect that you uh, whether whether you kind of recognize it a lot, there's this expectation of like the next generation, the next generation after that, in this case, being a, of, of them being able to kind of be better than you and pick up where you left off. And in some cases, I think children or the young generation, broadly speaking, can be left with an incredible amount of baggage and an incredible amount of expectation, a lo- basically like a pressure to be perfect, a pressure to basically be impossibly together. And even if it's not kind of c- conveyed out of malice, it's still something that can be incredibly hard to live with. And there's this expectation that, oh, Mahito's grand uncles, like you're, you're the one, you, you are the perfect inheritor of this world, you you will repair. You will you will kind of be the one to kind of fix the blocks. And Mahito is saying, "But I'm I'm not perfect. I have malice. I have anger. I have this darkness in me." And it's I think it's less about having to let go of that, and more about accepting that that's part of him and that's okay. Yeah, I think for me that's the more important piece of it, and that's honestly the harder. I, I hate to use the word lesson because. One of the things I like about Miyazaki's films compared to a lot of like Western children's media is they're not about conveying specific lessons, which I think speaking of like when I was a kid, that was like the most irritating thing in the world because like kids media at its best, it can convey that without being didactic about teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this goes back to respecting your young audience, which Miyazaki's films do. The lesson, if there is one, more than just letting go it's about accepting your own flawed nature and being okay with that you don't have to be perfect you're allowed to be angry you're allowed to be kind of a little shit sometimes that's okay we didn't talk we didn't talk about the uh the uh the old ladies at all i'm I'm curious like because one one, i I don't have a ton else i necessarily wanted to hit like as i always do i'll give you guys some final thoughts but like I think one thing that has come did become apparent again in having watched the ones I did was that like seems like Mizaki has like more affection for kids or old people than he does for just about anyone else. And uh like I mean, those people, those those, those old ladies were, you know, they they were funny, not a whole lot distinct about them when they show up in the first part of the movie. But obviously he, he ends up traveling through the portal with one of them, who then we get to meet the younger version of, who is uh in the in the dub version is voiced by Florence Pugh. Did you have any thoughts on that, Ben? And just like what the intentionality was behind him, like making that decision to be like, all right, that's what I'm going to do with one of these characters. Well, I mean, I think part of it is like in in the beginning of the film, they're almost there as this like, not exactly Greek chorus, but they almost feel more part of the world than actual characters. Mm. They, They don't like, they don't feel like individuals. They feel like kind of just, again, even the way they're animated, they feel deformed, like they feel kind of almost super deformed in a way that like they don't feel human in the way the other human characters feel like part of the real world. They almost already feel like more one of the mystical elements of this house. 
but I think I, I again I, I would hesitate to say like oh this was a specific intention but I do think that there is yeah no yeah as we already kind of established it's probably a little silly to uh try and you know uh read too much into him in any one way yeah yeah I mean, but I mean I, again some some things I think you can point to in that choice part of what this dream this almost kind of like other world this dream space does as much as it allows like Mahito to gain some sense of closure it also allows this kind of old person who again we have like the, I think the old woman in the beginning they can they're they come off as sort of petty and crabby and gossipy and I think they're they're not entirely positive characters, but we have this character who's almost allowed to live out this alternate dream life of themselves as this almost ideal kind of free adventurous young person. Hmm. It's not just that she's young, it's that she like she's the pirate queen. And I think that again, more than there being some, some sort of thesis there, uh, it feels like kind of a gift to the old of whether there is a pure narrative importance to it or not, he's given this person a chance to live out this dream life. And there is something beautiful about the potential of magic to make this impossible thing happen. So yeah, I, I again, I, would, I, I don't know if I would point to like a specific, like one specific thematic reason for that. I think it was a very cool choice. I think there are things that are interesting about it, but that was that was kind of sort of how I felt about it, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the perspective. It was just that that's it was it was that 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 character ends up playing a decent role in the movie, and I would have felt yeah. weird if we didn't at least like pay some lip service to that as well. Uh, Joe, the, uh, the fishing scene is cool as hell. It's but, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really, I really like that a lot. Just yeah. the action of it. And yeah, no. everything about that island set piece, like I, I, we brought yeah. up like the War War and Pelicans before, but even just kind of the way that island is designed, mm-hmm. and everything about the boat, everything about the fishing, everything about that entire sequence. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of insanely gorgeous, and like some of the most coolly designed stuff Miyazaki has ever done in the film. Yeah, it was a very uh, as as much goes into the pelican or just anything else in here. It's like they they, they also don't like you know they 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 pay probably just as much attention to the how the fish look as anything else. So that's a uh, you know probably probably why it's, why 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 the movie is like just uh, such an accomplishment. Um, There's also unsurprisingly some very good looking food. Mm-hmm. oh yeah it's uh yeah that's uh I, definitely um not, I, not sure how familiar you are with the bit but kind of one of the things people joke about is like no food looks more delicious than studio ghibli food i did not know that was for a bit the one thing i had noticed about just like it seemed like a common theme was like man no one bleeds like in animated movies like they bleed in these movies uh even like when he gashes himself in the head like because at that point i think i'd only seen spirited away maybe at that point and uh so it was like oh wow gosh that is like intense for a kids movie and then i watched princess mononoke okay. i was like okay maybe that wasn't really so bad after all <laughs> so it's like it, 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 whether it be uh you know crying or blood or whatever it's like they pay such great detail to like you know every every little thing like that that might happen to physically yeah. to a person you know um um, just, just uh, that, that that was something that just stuck with me across watching all these movies. Um, Joe, uh, before you wrap up, any, just any, 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 any other parts about Boy and the Heron that we didn't touch on that you wanted to highlight before we, uh, before we uh, called it a night? I, mean, I think we we covered everything. I, uh, I, I do want to shout out um, Willem Dafoe's monologue as the as the pelican. I just thought that was really nicely done, and you know, you 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 see the you see the pelicans eating those sweet little souls, and you're just like, oh, the pelicans, and then. 
And then that then they then he hits you with Miyazaki hits you with that scene. You're just like, oh, okay. Like <laughs> I feel <laughs> but uh no, I, I I really enjoyed it. It was a it was a gorgeous movie and um and uh, I'm glad I'm glad we did this. So Ben, did you did you I am assuming it sounded like you went to you went to the subtitle version, subbed? I did. I mean, so as much as I don't rewatch movies, mm-hmm. as you know, this is one that I will inevitably probably rewatch at some point. To, um, to, to see it dubbed or just just to take in a just second in general view? and next oh, okay. time i see it i'll probably see it with the dub just to see the other version mm-hmm. so the, the movie i have seen more than any other is princess mononoke really so yeah and i saw it with the sub this time which again i don't you're not going to go wrong either way so yeah i i mean i think that's like i said at the beginning i think one of the cool things about these movies is like i don't i I, oh, actually, I haven't seen any of them sub, but just that, like, it, it, the dubs are so effective. And at the, least the localization the tends to be incredibly, like, well handled on on all of his films. Yeah, the, the dub and even the translation. It's it, like it it is second to none as far as like. Yeah, I did, did. You see? Did, did, did Ben? Did you happen to read the David Ehrlich piece about what went into uh, getting the dubs done? I didn't. Uh, there's like he actually did a really big article for IndieWire. I sent it to Joe. I meant to send it to you about like that. Like, I mean, the, uh, all the care that went into it, but there, it's a, an interesting timing on the process where like G Kids has like access to f- parts of the movie like well in advance, but they didn't actually start recording any of it till like August of this year or something like that. It's the process, the process just seemed really interesting and even how they went about identifying who they wanted to do the voices. And uh, like I, my, my friend Charlie, uh, I was talking to him about it before we either of us had seen it and he'd just seen the previews and he. He, he was just kind of taken by it. He's like, yeah, I saw the previews and I, 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 I knew Willem Dafoe was in it and I just assumed he was the Pelican when I heard it. And so it's it's kind of cool if you like end up going to the dub version just and you know kind of what Robert Pattinson sounds like to then see him do this. And uh, <laughs> it, 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 was, it was it was pretty impressive that like, you know, just the, what, what, they, what they put off and like, you know, um, w- w- with that character. And it's cool that he was down to put in the effort. I'm sure it took to like stay in character from a voice perspective on that. Um, there, there always tends to be a ton of effort. Like, you know, who did the English language script and translation for Princess Mononoke? I think I might have heard this, but I forgot. Neil Gaiman. Oh, I did hear that. That's yeah, interesting. They brought yeah. Neil Gaiman on to just kind of do the like the English translation for that movie. Wow. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, Ben. Anything else you wanted to t- touch on before you wrapped up? Look, obviously, I can go on about this one for way too long, can. so yeah. I'll try to only bring up one thing that we didn't talk about. Yeah. That I think needs to be highlighted. What's that? You kind of can't like. Miyazaki is kind of most regular collaborator at this point, uh, and someone you kind of can't talk about his films without bringing up is uh, the composer Joe Hisaishi, who, just as a as a film composer, but as a pure composer, is genuinely a master. And I, I mean, you can talk about like everything about the sound, the sound design in the movie, like the Foley work alone is is incredible. But the the score to Boy and the Heron, it works incredibly in the film, and it, I listen to it outside of it, and it's just an incredibly beautiful score on its own. Emotional, complex, stirring, beautiful. It's what you expect a Joe Hisaishi score to be. Um, again, not not much to say about it other than that it's fantastic, and it's as fantastic as you would expect. Uh, I just wanted to make sure I at least kind of recognize that because, like that 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 is a collaboration that has endured for a very long time for very good reason so it looks like there's actually from what i've seen in the what what, what research i've done so far there's actually a chance it, it gets an oscar nomination for score which i'm sure i really hope it does but through you and it's just and that just speaks to the fact that it's even being like predicted by the people that spend such time on such 
things like Oscar's prognostication, the fact that it's even firmly in the conversation, I think speaks to it because not every day you see an animated movie get nominated there, you know? Um, Look, I, again, I, I'm not putting money on it, but I think there is a world where the movie gets some love outside of like, like even outside, like not even kind of score, but some broader love outside of animation. Again, it's not like if you look in Gold Derby, it's not like fully in the 10 or in the five yet, but it's close enough that if pe if this ends up being a movie that six the people as voting goes on, it has a chance of getting a little love outside of that category. Who knows? I pr it probably won't, but I would love to see it happen. Definitely. Um. Yeah. I. I, I don't know much. I that myself. Like I said, I just. I hope anyone that's watching, you know, uh, or anyone, or anyone that listened to this and is thinking about seeing it, like I. I just again, I can't. I. I can't recommend it enough because it's. It's cool that like you know just just to if you've only really been exposed to American animation, I think, uh, you don't have to have the depth of knowledge that like uh Ben or Joe do about this stuff to really appreciate something like this, and I think it's something that like people should encourage their family to see just so, you know, movies like this get a better chance of getting bigger American releases like this one does. And, you know, like didn't talk too much about like speculating about the future of Misaki. Sounds like he might have another idea in him. Uh, but like, he, he is actively working on his next movie. We'll see if. Okay. He, I didn't, I, I didn't know how much of that was rumor or how much of that had been reported. So good, good for it's, you. No, it's, it's, a, it's apparently happening. He's actually said at this point, I'm not even claiming I'm going to retire. If I finish another one, great. If I don't, whatever but probably I mean, probably the better way to do it. but I, I to his credit like I've, I've seen a little bit about how he's like been very self-deprecating about like just the fact that he hasn't actually stuck to his word on a lot of occasions on that um but, uh, but yeah uh, uh before, before you get out of here joe anything else you've been watching recently that you wanted to recommend to the listeners and shout out i know you've been dealing with some sick kids so i don't know if you've <laughs> been, been at home watching stuff even if you haven't been at the theaters or watching tv or anything else you've been watching recently that you uh, that you that you just say hey uh, check that out yeah, um, I was I was pretty saddened when um, when we lost Andre Brower recently. So I've sort of dipped back into Brooklyn Nine Nine just for some comfort viewing and to spend some time with him. And um, for anybody who hasn't possibly seen a uber popular comedy series that that's been on the last decade, you should check it out if you get the chance. It's a good recommendation. Also, I should note um, I saw David Simon tweeting the other day about how Homicide: Life on the Street might find a streaming home soon, which is a thing that people that watch that show oh. have always been really. Uh, curious about i i can't say i've ever had the pleasure of watching that but i know my parents really liked it back when it aired i i have not undertaken such a venture as watching like a six season show that i've like never that i have not seen a single episode of since 2020 that was a thing i had time for at that point in my life and uh just haven't really since but i, I can't lie and say I'd, i wouldn't be tempted to do that just based on like the clips i saw getting passed around of andre brower in that show uh if if that were to happen so um that's just something to keep in mind if like it pops up on peacock or something like that or max or something like that soon it's if, if you if you like police procedurals it seems like that is one that was done on a you know at a higher level than a lot of the ones that are put out new today you know so uh ben anything else you've been watching recently that you've can that you want to plug for the listeners whether it be something with la privilege that you've seen that we could see soon or something else that's older so it's not exactly recent at this point mm -hmm. it came out a couple months ago but just because i haven't had a chance to talk about it yet uh up until i saw boy in the heron my movie of the year was a movie called a fire mm. which it very it's a very special movie it's a uh it's german it's actually by uh, the director of a movie i talked about on kind of my year-end wrap-up before uh director's name is christian Pitzold. i love him a lot this is maybe his best work it's about a writer who kind of goes on an artist retreat to a friend's cabin and it kind of ends up being him and 
him, his friend, and two strangers who kind of end up there at the same time. One of the things about I love about Petzold is he's a filmmaker who his whose films grow on him. When I saw the movie, I liked it a lot. It kind of deals a lot with being a writer. It deals a lot with self-loathing. It deals a lot with travel and what it means. It deals a lot with the things that are like very personally significant. For I was say, it seems like they kind of targeted this one to you. Yeah. Um, but I also think more than that, it is a movie that deals broadly with what it is to be alive to and to actually fully be alive, to, to be present in the world. And it's a movie that I liked when I saw, but then I couldn't get out of my head. And the more I thought about it, the more it sat with me, the more I loved it. And it, it, it's a movie that at this point I think is very special. Highly, highly worth checking out. It also has one of the most un intentionally unlikable main characters I have ever seen. That's all hmm. I'm going to say about that. Okay. Last quick plug, though, um, just because we've been talking about Ghibli, there is a Studio Ghibli film that slips through the cracks for a lot of people because it is technically not made by a Japanese filmmaker. Um, There's a movie called The Red Turtle that came out seven years ago, I think. I think it is one of the greatest animated movies ever made. It is one of Studio Ghibli's best films, however involved or not they were. It's one at this point doesn't get talked about as much as it should, but it is a deeply, deeply special movie. And it's one that I, I really recommend seeking out um, if you love Ghibli or animated films or even just if you love film in general, it's a really special movie. The Red Turtle is on Stars, but you can rent it other places and stuff like that. I I, I didn't realize it had come out that long ago. I feel like I remembered some of our friends talking about it. Only eighty minutes too, so uh, not 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 necessarily a huge commitment. It, it was twenty sixteen. Um, yeah, yeah. I did. I, I for some felt more recent. I feel like I just remembered talking about it with you before, but maybe I'm getting that confused with something else. I I I guess what, what would I recommend? I've actually been seeing a lot. You know what? I'll, I'll say it. I had a fun time at Wonka. I saw Wonka a couple of days ago. Okay. I'm not gonna lie. I I I came I came with low expectations, but like we have we have friends that are regulars on the podcast that are massive stands of Paul King due to the Paddington movies. So I mean, you know, if you just back when back when they announced Wonka, I probably had a skeptical reaction like everyone else, even when I knew it was the Paddington guy. And but I was just like, I'm gonna see it out of professional obligation because I have friends that want to talk about it on the podcast and like. I had a, and I'm not even a musical guy. And there's been this whole, like, I'm, I don't know if either of you guys have kind of seen these stories the last couple of weeks about Hollywood movies that are musicals, not getting marketed as musicals because yeah. musicals don't do well with test audiences, which I mean, that, that's just been a topic the last couple of weeks. And uh, Wonka was one of the ones for that. And like, I don't, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it was like the best musical ever or anything like that. I not really any like earworm songs necessarily that stuck with me though. In the course of the movie, when they were musical numbers, even though, Timothy Chalamet is not known as a song and dance guy. Like I, I still had a fun time with them and just like in, enjoyed the vibe of the movie, which I guess shouldn't surprise me because I do like the Paddington movies, but I, I, I just, I, I had a really nice time with it given that I didn't have high expectations when that movie got announced. And I think, you know, that's, that, that's a fun one. That, that would also be a fun one to go to with your family if you're looking for something like that. And I, and I can recommend it, which I wasn't necessarily expecting to be able to do. So, but yeah, uh, that's about all I got, uh, before we get out of here, uh, Joe, anything you want to plug, uh, personally, uh, work-wise or, uh, letterbox-wise or social media-wise? Yeah, um, I'm on Letterboxd. I, I don't really leave a ton of reviews, so, but <laughs> if you're interested in what I or my daughter are watching, <laughs> it is logged, so, but, uh, I forget my username on there, but. That's um, okay. I, yeah. I I I I can find I can find it if need be. Uh, I think Ben is similarly enigmatic on Letterbox, but did, Ben, did you want to plug Letterbox or anything else social media wise? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a, again, same deal as Joe. I, I update once in a blue moon, um, but I'm on Letterboxd either as Ben Lubin or the plot is lost with word. Joe, you're Jay Parker Morgan, so that's okay, it. Okay. I'm at Josh Hurtovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R, N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd, though I have not logged a Letterboxd movie since uh, Into the Spider-Verse, which I saw when I was in Los Angeles, which was in June. So uh, though I have like two more months of reviews written that I've just been like too scattered to actually post, and I'm trying to catch up when I take like most of next week off to chill with my grandpa in Philadelphia. So we'll see about that. But uh, again, in uh, podcast, Twitter is at RyanMoviePod. Email is RyanMoviePod at gmail.com. Coming up next, I guess we will have, uh, we'll have episodes. I know, I mean, as far as ones I know, I already have, I've seen and have guest book for, well, Maestro and Poor Things. Uh, but like, I don't know what order anything's coming in, but there's just a ton of stuff coming in the last couple of weeks of the year. I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll do an episode. Oh, I'm sure I'll do an episode on uh, Ferrari, which I guess that's the other one. I'm going to have Fred and Elijah for that. And uh, anyone but you, uh, I, you know, there's one wrong, wrong coming year. We got to talk about it. So plenty of stuff coming out. Uh, I just don't know the order of it. But again, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Joe and Ben for being so generous with their time. And uh, we'll see you next time.